get your free audio gift, The Three Pillars of Achieving Your Perfect Weight Using the Mind-Body Connection, go to freefitnessaudio.com and enter your first name and email address, and we'll send that to you right away. Welcome, everyone, to episode 40 of Healthy Mind, Fit Body Podcast. This is Wes, and I have Kevin on the other line. Hey, Kev. Hey there. And we actually have a guest today. Great interview. We've been talking about Rob Wolf for a few weeks now, and we finally got him on the show. Uh, you interviewed him for Try Swim Coach podcast, right? Yeah, I interviewed him a few weeks ago, and it was a really amazing interview. And we talked about a lot of the nutrition aspects having to do with sports and uh, endurance sports specifically. And uh, he really can get into detail. So this is going to be an awesome interview coming up. All right. Sit back and uh, grab your loincloth and club and pull up a campfire. And here we go with the paleo discussion. Rob Wolf possesses a unique perspective of both scientist and athlete as a personal trainer at NorCal Strength and Conditioning in Chico, California. Rob is an NSCA certified strength and conditioning specialist. In addition, he is a USAW Olympic weightlifting coach and a certified CrossFit coach. Rob has worked as a research biochemist for five years, is a review editor for the Journal of Nutrition and Metabolism, and now has an informative weekly podcast at robwolf.com, and that's Rob with two Bs. He also has a book due out soon titled The Paleolithic Solution. Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, welcome, Rob. Good to have you. Thank you. Definitely. So when's that book coming out? I've been listening to your podcast, and every one you guys talk about the book, it's coming out any time. September 10th, it'll be in stores everywhere. We're actually like literally just uh, hammering and wordsmithing the final edits on it. Then it goes to the copy editor. We review it, make sure that all the graphics and everything look good. But probably by next Friday, it will be off to the printer. And then two-week turnaround, then we'll start shipping out advanced copies and... We're almost there. It's almost there. Really nice. cool. I'm excited to see that too. I'm surprised you got that title because there's a lot of paleo stuff going on out there, right? Yeah, I, I think I was just kind of one of the old folks who uh, squatted on one of the uh, the, the originals. You so, had first yeah. dibs, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. There was nobody else there, so it was kind of easy. So Now, in the writing of that, did you take a lot of information that you've done on the podcast? Because that is really a lot of detailed, informative stuff. You know, I guess I have, but honestly, if the book models anything, it kind of models the Paleolithic Solution seminar that I've I've done for three years now. Uh, it it kind of grew out of a need to provide better background information and then follow up information after the seminar because I, I would provide a very detailed printed handout, but it, it just the folks that were rolling in the door didn't have a basic science background. There was a ton of information ranging from the elements of digestion to endocrinology to uh, autoimmunity and inflammation. And so I needed some sort of a, a concise, specific source that I could give people to help them just elevate their game nutritionally. Mm-hmm. And so that's really the impetus for writing this. And then over time, it's just grown and grown. And now it's a uh, full-blown book. And I think we're looking at probably 300 plus pages when it's all said and done, not even considering the uh, reference section, which is pretty sizable itself. Excellent. That'll be a good amount to chew on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It'll either be an amazing doorstop or a perfect cure for insomnia. (laughs) Smacking mastodons upside the head, maybe. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Get you out of a tight spot in one way or another, I promise. Yeah. Uh, Good. Good. Can't wait. So, 
we were debating on a, I call you the paleo go-to guy. Uh, we were debating on whether you are the guy or one of the guys. Oh, I'm definitely one of the guys. I'm, <laughs> I'm not the guy. I, I think whenever anybody starts guru-izing anybody or they get this sense that their perspective on stuff is the definitive treatment of a topic, then bad, bad stuff happens. So I, I am super stoked for what I'm able to bring to bear. I feel like I've got a really good background between the biochemistry research, uh, being a strength coach, and then working with literally thousands, tens of thousands of people. I think that's where I have some really good strength. But uh, there are so many cool people, uh, John Durant, Erwin LaCour with MoveNat, um, Richard Nolke, Mark Sisson. Like, there's just a ton of people and all these folks bring a really cool perspective to it. And it was interesting. My editor commented because of he was watching me do some Facebook updates and then receive some phone calls and whatnot. And a lot of the folks that I'm interacting with and helping to promote what they have going on from his perspective, because with Victory Bell Publishing, they've been publishing uh, mixed martial arts books. They're the world definitive leader in mixed martial arts instructionals. Uh, they have like Randy Couture, Anderson Silva, like every big name in the world. That's who they publish through. But it's a very competitive thing. They're always on the lookout for like a random house or somebody kind of pinching their material and republishing it. Whereas in this uh, kind of paleo primal scene, at least right now, people are very collegial. You know, we have this ancestral fitness symposium that's happening next year. And pretty much, you know, the top 20, 30 big players in the whole scene, Cordain, Art Devaney, myself, a ton of people are going to be speaking at this thing. And it's still a very collegial process. So even though some people are getting in and monetizing certain elements of it and they have seminars or certifications themselves or they're writing books or whatnot, it's still much more of a high tides raise all boats kind of philosophy versus the that guy's a dick and I need to knock him down at the knees or something like that. And so I'm hoping that that maintains throughout the whole thing or we're able to keep a nucleus of that because it's really fun. It, it's a group of some really amazingly talented, very, very passionate people. And at the end of the day, I think we're doing some really good work. Like people report that it's saving their lives, improving their lives. And I don't know that any one person has the voice to reach everybody who needs help. So yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Can you tell us more about how you became like how you landed on paleo? I know you went through some transitions in terms of your diet and what you thought was the best possible diet. You know, I when I was a biochem undergrad, I just started transitioning more and more towards a vegetarian approach. That was definitely the dominant paradigm that was being pushed. This is probably 95 through 98. And the funny thing is that I, I think maybe just being younger, like you can kind of deal with bad dietary choices. But, you know, I started immediately getting funky digestion, sort of losing muscle mass, just kind of thought it was a detox process. In Chico, California, there's actually a big macrobiotics community. And so I started chatting with a bunch of those folks. And they were definitely of the opinion that this was kind of a detox process. And so I just kind of rode this vegetarian pony until I was literally about ready to die. I, when I moved to Seattle to attend graduate school, everything started like the wheels really started falling off the wagon at that point. And looking back now, I, I was under massive amounts of stress. I was vitamin D deficient. I was eating gut irritating foods. And I really, you know, wasn't digesting much of anything. You know, my nutrient absorption was horrible. I had colitis so bad that my MD was thinking that I needed a bowel resection. And then all the kind of alternative health practitioners I was working with, naturopaths, acupuncturists, they were just like, dude, you are a mess. 
But the funny thing is that the consensus among these people was that this vegetarian diet I was eating was probably the only thing keeping me alive. You know, I had high blood pressure, bad triglycerides, uh, depression, uh, GI problems like you just cannot believe it was like Montezuma's revenge just every single day, you know. And then a weird thing happened. My mom got very, very sick. She had had health problems for years, but she went into the hospital and they discovered that she had basically the way they described it was that her heart and lungs were almost on fire, you know, because of the inflammation going on in her. And they finally whittled this down to a combination of lupus and rheumatoid arthritis, some very, very potent, very gnarly uh, autoimmune diseases. And in the course of some blood work, they discovered that she had a grain intolerance, which is called celiac, which is in and of itself another autoimmune disease. But in talking to my mom, like we tracked down the celiac concept and then her rheumatologist recommended that she not eat grains, you know, like wheat, rye, oats, barley, millet. He also recommended that she not consume legumes because they were co-irritants in things like lupus. And so I was sitting there thinking, I'm like, well, hell, you know, the food pyramid is based on grains and legumes, essentially. But now my mom is sick because it's causing problems for her. I have a bunch of problems really, really similar to this. What the heck should I do? And it literally was this wacky kind of string of thought. But I was like, well, evolution, evolutionary biology, hunter-gatherers, paleo diet. And then I went and researched it and uh, found Professor Cordain's information, Arthur Devaney's information, found all this information on leaky gut and autoimmune response, eventually tracked down the work by uh, Michael and Mary Eads, uh, Dr. Eads with a Protein Power, Protein Power Life Plan, and acted to change and immediately felt better. Like all the signs, symptoms of illness went away. High blood pressure, bad triglycerides resolved within, you know, a month or so. The GI problems went away. The depression went away. And I was pretty well sold after that. And so it was just very much an experimental thing of working on myself. And then I started working with other people when we opened the gym. And then via CrossFit and then after CrossFit, I had the opportunity to work with thousands of people and help them, you know, just tinker with this stuff. And the results are nothing short of stunning. And then, of course, of working with these folks, we've uncovered that a number of diseases we would not have normally thought were uh, autoimmune related, like porphyria and uh, Huntington's and some other really life-threatening diseases have an autoimmune underpinning to them. And so I've been fortunate enough to be able to contribute some information, which has led now to some clinical trials that are going on in uh, Lisbon, Portugal, and so I still am able to keep a little bit of a finger on the research side of things, but mainly functioning as a strength coach. Really cool. Well, speaking of autoimmune diseases, I came down with type 1 diabetes about 15 years ago. And mm-hmm. uh, it was a big surprise to me. I had no idea really what that disease was. I knew it had something to do with insulin and sugar and avoid something. Don't eat sugars or eat sugars. Turns out diabetics have to do both because when their blood right. sugar is low, they have to eat some sugar to bring it back up and so forth. You know, I've been playing the human pincushion since then. Right. And I noticed that you kind of frown upon dairy products. Um, I've been eating dairy, and I've actually done a lot of research on diabetes, and it turns out in Finland, they have the highest incidence of type 1, and they drink and consume a lot of dairy products. So there is a correlation there. They don't exactly know what the causation is, or if there is. What's your perspective on dairy, and, uh, you know, should people be eating it at all? 
you know, just backing up and looking at autoimmunity in general, we have a pretty good mechanism for how most autoimmunity is occurring. And it seems to be starting at some sort of a gut lining damage. We, we have these tiny little structures in our small intestine called microvilli, villi, and microvilli. And when these structures and the lining that they are a part of get damaged, it allows large intact food particles to get into our system. And the problem with that is that certain food particles, you know, parts of chicken and fish and egg and particularly dairy and grains have proteins that look like proteins in our bodies. It's called molecular mimicry. And what happens then is that our immune system will mount a response to these invasive proteins, to these foreign proteins. And when it makes antibodies to these proteins, the collateral damage occurs when these antibodies not only fit on these foreign invaders, but they also fit on the proteins in our bodies that look like elements of these foreign proteins. Mm -hmm. So like in your example, there are proteins in the beta cell of the pancreas, which definitely have homology, have similarity between dairy proteins and other, you know, grain type proteins. And so this is likely the causative factor with you. There are some other things like viral infections, bacterial infection that can be players. And the thing that it's my opinion, and I may be, this is where I may be like over the top paleo dude, but I think that even if viral infection is a causative factor, I suspect that the grain legume dairy scenario exacerbates the situation and makes it worse because we've seen quite a number of people now who when they first develop type 1 diabetes, there's usually a refractory period or a honeymoon period. Yep. And if we can intervene at that point, get them completely grain, legume, and dairy-free, we've seen 20, 30 people now just reporting through the blog, and then we're seeing this in some other locations too, they're able to reverse type 1 diabetes. So they're no longer insulin-dependent. Yeah, yeah, That's because they, they still have some pancreatic function left. Mm-hmm. And instead of just hammering it with exogenous or outside insulin and continuing to eat in a way that is causing inflammation that damages the pancreatic cells, the beta cells, they're able to step back, um, get a handle on the nutrition, do a very, very tight grain, dairy, legume-free paleo diet. And we've seen complete resolution on that, you know, where they regain pancreatic function. That's amazing because I'd like to see doctors' reports on that because uh, really I haven't seen anything like that in the research. Although I do have some anecdotal evidence. Yeah, there's some there's some stuff in medical literature on that. I mean, the honeymoon period is a very well understood scenario. And occasionally people will pop out of that. Sure. But what we're finding in my blog, and granted, my blog is definitely not, you know, a peer-reviewed scientific scene. But what we have are people who have navigated to the site and heard about this concept and then tried it. And then what they're reporting is the resolution of the symptoms and then getting some interesting feedback from their docs and, and stuff like that. I see. Yeah, actually, it turns out when I was two years into my honeymoon in 97, 95 is when I got diagnosed, I switched over to the zone diet. So I dropped my carb Mm -hmm. intake by like 300 carbs a day uh, down to 150. And I went without insulin for two weeks. So I attributed that to the fact that I still had some cells viable. And uh, who knows, maybe if I would have dropped dairy at that point, I could have sealed the deal. But uh, I eventually had to go back on insulin. I'm now below 100 grams of carbs a day and uh, take minimal amounts compared to what I used to, obviously. But uh, it's a fascinating subject. Yeah. And, you know, the type 1 diabetic is an interesting scenario in that you, 
in my opinion, and there's a, a guy, Dr. Bernstein, who's been treating folks with type 1 and type 2 diabetes for years, and yeah. he recommends a periketogenic diet for the type 1 diabetic, which ketosis is a normal metabolic state. It's when our body is running primarily on fats, and then the fats get broken down at such a rate that we're making ketone bodies and releasing those into the system. But the lion's share of the body's tissues can run on ketone bodies. There are a few tissues in the brain, uh, the red blood cells that can only run on glucose. But my proposition, I think the proposition of a lot of folks who've worked in the low carb kind of idea, especially when they actually enact it with people, is that if you have somebody who has insulin regulation problems, let's take like a type one diabetic, does it make sense to feed them a nutrient that really is only transported into their cells with insulin or does it make sense to shift them as much as you possibly can to an alternative fuel source so that your insulin needs are vastly reduced? Mm-hmm. And that totally makes sense to me. And what we've found, is, and it sounds like you've already been, you know, essentially heading insulin bolus drops, your A1Cs, the indicator of how high your blood sugars have been, drop. And so people who are type 1 diabetic are able to get normal blood sugar readings over both the short and the long haul but it's by counterintuitively by eating significantly less carbs than what their docs would normally recommend. Their docs typically just say, you know, eat as many carbs as you want and then control it with your insulin, which yeah, when you ridiculous. really look at the medical ramifications, it's madness. It is. It is total madness. And we interviewed uh, Dr. James Carlson last couple of shows, and he basically accuses them of genocide because of the neglect that they're doing with people, um, encouraging them to eat things that are deleterious to their health on a daily basis. So... That's pretty interesting. I noticed that you kind of make a distinction between like grass-fed dairy versus the grain source dairy. Do you think that makes a big difference? Before we go there, I just wanted to ask, Rob, as far as dairy goes, what's the problem with dairy just for the average person oh, that doesn't have yeah. diabetes? There, or anything? There's kind of twofold deal. One is that it has some insulinogenic effects. It stimulates insulin release and the release of insulin-like cofactors which can be really, really problematic from a weight loss perspective and also from an inflammatory perspective, recovery from exercise, all that sort of stuff. Then on the other side of this, we have this kind of leaky gut autoimmune response, lectin issue. So dairy is definitely also a gut irritant. Because we grain feed the dairy, that's a problem. But dairy also inherently has protease inhibitors, proteins that block the breakdown of the dairy, beta cellulin being one of the key elements of that. These are the kind of biochemical underpinnings of why dairy is problematic. And the funny thing is people will say, I've eaten dairy my whole life. I have no problem. This is nuts. You're an idiot. And then I, you know, if I say, well, just pull it out of the rotation for a month and then tell me how do you look, feel, and perform relative to when you have it in, it is rare to never that these people do not feel better with the removal of the dairy. And then people will say, well, what if it's yogurt? You know, it's not the lactose issue, which is really about the only thing that gets dealt with in the yogurt. There is a little bit of protein breakdown additional to that. But it's mainly the just the fact that we're not really designed to consume dairy beyond childbirth. And we certainly weren't consuming dairy of other critters, you know, in our kind of genetic makeup. Can certain people or under certain situations tolerate dairy better than others? Yes, absolutely. We have examples of pastoralist people who adapt to this. But even within that, most pastoralist peoples that we see, like the Maasai or the kind of Mongol peoples who are kind of held up as examples of pastoralists who do well with dairy, the type of dairy they end up getting is not only grass-fed, but there's a type of cattle. There's an A1 versus an A2 cattle. 
I always get this confused. I think the type of cattle that the Maasai use are considered an A2 cattle. And the type of casing that's produced with that cattle is very, very different than the type of casing that we're exposed to, the main protein in the dairy, which is gut irritating. It's kind of pro-inflammatory, has an insulinogenic response. And so we have kind of shifted the type of dairy that we use in a dramatic way. The casing is quite different. We grain feed it, which changes the omega-3 and omega-6 profile. It removes all the good things like alpha-lipoic acid and conjugated linoleic acid and all these great nutrients that would normally be in the dairy. And then we have this confounder of uh, lectin content because of the grain feeding. But that's all the like theoretical stuff, which people just kind of glaze over and start drooling on themselves when you talk about it at any length. And so this is where I just throw out there to folks, if you consume dairy on a regular basis and you're concerned at all about your performance, health, and longevity, why don't you try peeling it out of the rotation for a month and then reintroduce it and just see how you do. And then it's not a, a pissing match back and forth about my ideas versus your ideas. Like if you're interested in it, just give it a shot. I've played with it both ways. So I know where I'm at. Maybe you need to discover where you're at with it. Yeah, I think a lot of people are going with the common sense notion of, well, we drink dairy when we're born and when we're infants, basically come out of there and we're, you know, feeding off of it for up to two, three, five years even. Uh, depends on what your perspective is on that. The La Leche League, I guess, recommends two years. So you've got those macronutrients of fat and protein in the milk, and so why wouldn't that be good? But then you think about, well, you're actually drinking it from another species, and uh, I guess the fact that most people aren't lactose intolerant kind of gives them that leeway. But like you say, if you want to fine-tune your health, maybe it's something to look at, huh? Yeah, that's definitely my perspective on it. And, you know, the lactose steel is just a tiny piece of the puzzle, unfortunately. Like, I wish it was more simple, but it's just not. Yeah. yeah. But an easy way to simplify it is just simply play with it and see, you know, pull it out of rotation. Have you seen any hard evidence about the cancer link, linked to cancer to dairy? Oh, yeah. You know, uh, Professor Cordain pulled down a uh, fantastic piece on that. Um, interestingly, again, in Finland and some of the northern European countries, you know, here again, it's like a correlation is not causation. But we have some mechanisms here that show, you know, dairy is understood to be a very potent growth promoter. It releases things like epithelial growth factor, insulin-like growth factor, and these things are important. They're good for us, but in certain amounts and at certain times during our life cycle and the continual consumption of dairy releases these growth promoters all the time. And the thing that I like to throw out there is what does continual uncontrolled growth sound like to you? Like, what does that make you think of? More than just big and bulky in the gym, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, it sounds like cancer to me. And there are mechanisms that describe this related to increased hyperplasia, basically increased cell growth, and then a dysregulation of apoptosis of the program cell death if a cell becomes abnormal. So there is some proposed mechanism in here that just needs to be studied. Mm -hmm. But instead of just simply leaving it at, well, there's correlation here. Um, and Matt Lalonde, a great friend, a Harvard PhD chemist, you know, he and I are both of the opinion at this point, like, if a study comes out and they don't have a proposed mechanism attached to it, like it's just they're correlating stuff and the thing needs to be burned. The people generating the study should should probably be burned. You know, it's like we all need to step our game up on this. There needs to be a proposed mechanism on these things and not just simply a reshuffling of the obvious data that's already been looked at. And a lot of what this is is just the research communities. This is the way that they keep 
labs and uh, basically research grants going is that you tweak a tiny variable and then do more correlative data. But we need some concrete investigations on like, okay, what's the mechanism? Let's uh, test the mechanism and then either prove or disprove this and then go on. And if we need to collect more data to look at this more closely, then that's an entirely different thing. But simply spitting uh, epidemiological correlates out there is not doing anybody any favors. Yeah, and then there's all the mouse studies, the reams and reams of mouse studies that uh, I'm frustrated with because they've cured mice of type 1 diabetes every which way to Sunday. And, of course, very few of those things, if any, translate to humans. So I'm kind of more focused on the immune modulation aspect of it. But I guess we can move on from dairy now, huh, Kev? Yeah, we got – so the other evil, grains. So how do you differentiate between the various types of grains, brown rice, uh, you know, white rice, white – pasta and whole wheat pasta, all that? Well, I try to differentiate them personally by just not really consuming them. But it's, uh, I guess the main demarcation for me is the more gluten containing grains like wheat, rye, oats, barley, millet contain gluten. And even though tons of dietitians and doctors will say some of these items do not contain gluten. And when you get right down to it, they're kind of technically correct. Like oats, for example, have a protein that looks almost identical to what we consider gluten or gliden, but it has a couple of amino acids different to it. So technically, it's not it, but it's kind of like my analogy is, you know, okay, so it's not cat crap, it's just dog crap. So go ahead and eat it, you know, (laughs) knock yourself out. So yummy. uh, So some of the distinctions these people throw out uh, just make me want to lobotomize myself with a pencil, but it's a... You know, the big distinction for me is like gluten or not gluten. And then from there, you know, things like corn and rice, I look at those as being kind of like a firecracker. Like if you were to hold it in your hand and it went off, it would probably singe you a little bit. Whereas like the gluten containing things are like a stick of dynamite, like it's going to take a limb off. And that's kind of the impact that I see that it applies to people. When people start getting into like brown rice versus white rice, like they're just smoking crack and they're off on a different planet. Like the The nutritional distinctions between these things are so spurious as to be ridiculous. And if you think you're getting vitamins, minerals, and nutrient content from those items, then you are seriously missing the boat. There's wacky things called fruits and vegetables that destroy these grains and legumes with regards to like amount of nutrients per calorie, which is always where like the dietitians like to go is, you know, well, we need to eat fewer calories. And it's like, okay, well construct a diet for me that contains the fewest calories, but the most vitamins, minerals, and antioxidants. And when you do that, what boils out is a nutrition plan that is built around lean proteins, you know, ideally grass-fed, but uh, basically lean animal protein sources, seafood, fruits, vegetables, a modicum of uh, good fats. And there is no way that you construct a more nutrient-dense diet out of that whole process. And so when people start considering the nutrient content of grains, it's a little bit stupefying. And, and this is kind of an eye-opener for them when they look at kind of a side-by-side comparison of fruits, vegetables, lean meats by comparison. For our clients, I just push for them to go grain legume dairy-free for a month so that they can fully heal their gut, get healthy, reduce inflammation, And then I encourage everybody to remain gluten-free, but then if they want to kick their heels up and do some kind of off-the-rails foods, then it's more like beans, rice, corn tortillas, that sort of thing, and sticking with those foods more on the weekends. So it's kind of a five out of seven. They're more kind of paleoed out, and then on the weekends, they uh, may diversify the food a little bit, 
people seem able to stick to this long term. They feel good. They look good. Their performance is great. And that's kind of the long term livable scenario that I introduce for folks. And then like the yams and sweet potatoes and all that sort of stuff, I kind of reserve those for folks who are high-end athletic performance type people. So I look at carbohydrate intake mainly as a, an as-needed basis. And so if you aren't training really hard, then I tend to steer people more towards like protein, lots of veggies, and then good fats. And then the carbohydrates are more reserved for uh, hard training scenarios. And then the white potatoes Unfortunately, they come out of a family of plants that contain gut-irritating items that are very, very similar to grains. Yeah, we were talking to someone last night, actually, uh, that said that pre-cooked, just raw white potatoes don't have much starch in them. It's only as they ripen, I guess, that they form more carbohydrates. Is that at all correct? Well, no, it's, it's not. They contain starch, but the thing is, is that the starch needs to be essentially crystallized so that our salivary amylase and also our pancreatic amylase, the carbohydrate digesting enzymes that we release into our food can only attack starch that is in certain conformations, certain shapes. Uh-huh. And so cooking crystallizes this starch. And then also the maturation process of these plants will crystallize it to some degree also. But this is part of the reason why, uh, you know, if you ate just raw rice, you know, you can't really digest it. Raw potatoes, you can't really digest it. They're very, very minimal digestion. Mm-hmm. So these items can necessitate cooking to make them uh, digestible. But it's not It's not like this stuff is a rock and then it magically transforms into <laughs> yeah. carbohydrate. It's carbohydrate the whole time. It's just the confirmation that it's in the chemical confirmation changes, yeah. making it available for digestion. More bioavailable. And regarding yeah. the yams and sweet potatoes, how many packages of marshmallows do you put on those typically? Uh, as many as you want. <laughs> <laughs> Fat-free marshmallows, of course. It's funny because all the you know holiday celebrations and stuff, you always see yams or sweet potatoes covered in marshmallows. It's yeah. bizarre. Yeah. It's really odd. It's really odd. It's yeah. kind of disturbing. Yeah. So that ends the first part of this interview with Rob Wolf. That was a pretty good show we had there, huh, Kev? Yeah, we tackled really specific technical issues with nutrition, I think, with a sharp knife. Actually, it's a bone. You sharpen the bones to Sharp the point bone. where they can there become knives. Yeah, that's, or that's or actually, I think um, they did chip like flint and obsidian to make them into uh, cutting tools of sorts. How did they shave back then? Or did they just, everyone had just long beards? <laughs> that's an interesting question. <laughs> I often wonder about that myself. I think they just had, you know, had to deal with it. <laughs> they were hairy monsters. Yeah. Not exactly a... Uh, <laughs> Essential sort of lifestyle. Yeah. By any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. <laughs> well, think of all that time they saved, though. They didn't have to groom as much. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, they spent all their time foraging. Yeah. But uh, so we'll be continuing with the second part next week and we'll cover more of the good stuff that we just covered in this one. So. Yeah, and we'll get back to uh, more of the general kind of big picture stuff as well. Mm hmm. Feel free to send us any questions or comments, uh, comment in the show notes. And, of course, you can uh, follow the link to iTunes if you want to rate or review this show, get the word out to other people. And you're welcome to go to freefitnessaudio.com to get your free download of the three pillars of achieving your perfect weight through the mind-body connection. That'll get you started on this program of a healthier lifestyle. Yeah, if you have any questions or suggestions or you want to comment to us directly, just send us an email at info at healthymindfitbody.com. Excellent. Okay, well, everyone have a great week, and we'll talk to you next week. Have a great week, everyone.